A reading from the book of Isaiah. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall arbitrate for, his, for many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Happy December to everyone here. Um, I hope you're, you're ready. I hope your shoes are tied tightly. As we race to the 25th, that's what it means, at least in my world with little children, is that I uh, get an ever-lengthening list of wishes from Santa Claus uh, out there at Starbucks. You know, pumpkin has turned to peppermint. And so I think it's starting to feel a lot like Christmas, but in here, in this house, uh, Advent has begun. The season of waiting and yearning of wreaths. Here we got ours over here. Uh, wreaths being made and candles being lit. It's a season of darkness. Uh, when we talk about light coming into the world, it's a season of expectation. And every year when this rolls around, you just want to struck by just how countercultural it is. Um, we live in a very fast-paced uh, time or epoch, whatever you want to say, but where we rush from one high point to the next, one accomplishment to the next, one, one social media uh, uh, event to the next, and to have an entire season that's essentially a waiting room, uh, that is countercultural, something that is where there's nothing productive that happens. Uh, to sit in darkness, moreover, like that's the other part of it. You sit in darkness, and it, we live in a t- and I think there's the voice out there that really is telling us to, to avoid the darkness, to embrace the positive, to be uplifting, or at least don't be a downer. Uh, this injunction, this encouragement to sit in darkness and wait, well, it feels almost subversive. Yet there's clear wisdom to it, is there not? I mean, as some of us at least learned this past week, the turkey tastes a lot better if you don't eat a big breakfast, right? Tastes even better if you go for a long walk. Um, but then there's also the painful side to waiting. There's the, there's the payoff, and then there's the uncertainty. There's waiting for the doctor's call. There's waiting for the, the, the child to call. There's, there's waiting for the job promotion. Uh, and then just sort of putting waiting aside, there's the darkness of the world and, you know, indeed our own lives and our own hearts that can feel overpowering. And some people, I've heard it told on Thanksgiving, they experience this firsthand. They get a, they get a crash course in the darkness of their own families 
and in the acrimony that's been there for generations uh, between the, the okay boomers of the world and the okay millennials of the world, or simply just the loneliness of not having anywhere to go, or the fear and the greed and the violence and despair that you see about and you read about. Do we really need a season to wallow in darkness any more than we already do? I know I'm not the only parent out there that finds themselves turning off the radio news when my kids are in the car more and more often. And then, of course, when I start to think that, oh, I'm in some unique period of history, then I remember my parents did the exact same thing, right? Fortunately, Advent is not only a season of waiting and a season of, of, of darkness, it's also a season of surprise. It's, it's the season of surprise, you might say. And what I mean is the, the reading we just, that Jen just read from Isaiah contains two major surprises in Isaiah's description of what's coming, of the king and the kingdom that's on the horizon, of what it is we're waiting for, what it is we're expecting. It's not, it's not, it's not predictable. There's something deeply surprising, and there are two main surprises I'll highlight this evening. The first, it comes in that verse, in the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and all the nations shall stream to it. All the nations shall stream to it. Not just nation singular. Uh, the, the audience here, Isaiah's audience would have been very um, accustomed to thinking of the nation of Israel as separate, as chosen, as maybe persecuted, but God's instrument and God's people. And yet here we have this moment where, where Isaiah is saying all the nations are going to stream to the Lord's house. It's the great zoom out of, of sort of this part of the Old Testament. It, the surprise is that the scale of what's to come, the scale of the good news, is so much larger and so much better than we and they are imagining. And this is a surprise. You know, it's a surprise to people who live in bubbles. They lived in a bubble, a cultural, ethnic bubble. We live in bubbles. They're sort of more technological, perhaps, but we live in bubbles. And here you have this news that actually the, the coming kingdom is going to burst all the bubbles. And what great news that is to those who are on the outside of those bubbles. You know, sometimes I think we, we expect too, too little of God in our lives. And this is a reminder that uh, the scale is larger than we can ask for or imagine. And yet, like all surprises, as exciting as it is for some people, I think it would have rankled others, right? I mean, are you saying that we are no longer special? Are you taking something away? We went around the table uh, this week at my family household and talked about what we're thankful for, like everyone does. And one of the things I'm thankful for, immediately, straight to my mind, I didn't have to qualify it at all. I'm thankful for TSA PreCheck. I know that sounds like a really bougie thing to say, but I'm thankful for TSA PreCheck. Those of you who don't travel by air a lot, this is what it is. There's a line for everyone else to go through security, and you take off your shoes, and you take out your device, and you take out your liquids, and then there's TSA PreCheck, and you just breeze right on through. And when I first got TSA PreCheck, I was so overjoyed, and, and going to the airport, it completely transformed my experience of going to the airport. And uh, then before long, I got smug about it. I'd show up 40 minutes before my flight took off, 
You know, I'd look at all the schlubs in the general admission. And I'd just be like, you guys are chumps. And there I was going through TSA pre-check until that morning, 6 a.m., Charlottesville Airport. I show up 30 minutes before my flight, and pre-check is closed. And both the agents are dealing with everyone because there's a line of 80 people. And all of a sudden, I'm not happy about this surprise. In fact, everyone else would have been, it would have been a good surprise for me, for Mr. Special Status TSA PreCheck. I don't have clear, by the way, so I'm not top of the heap, but I'm doing okay. I all of a sudden, I, I realize, you know, uh, I don't want my special status taken away. Anyway, that's kind of trivial, but it is to say that the, when the bubble gets burst, sometimes those on the inside get upset. But secondly, the second big surprise in Isaiah's uh, words here tonight is this thing about swords being turned into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. What he's saying is that in this kingdom, with this king, weapons will be rendered into farming implements. The, the, the weapons of war will be transformed. Uh, that which is used to destroy will be used to create and to cultivate. The coming Lord... Uh, will not be a militaristic king there to conquer and to vanquish, but a prince of peace who will redeem the instruments of aggression and will make it that, that people learn war no more and no nation rises up against no other nation. Division ceases. Now, that would have been a major surprise. We, we, have a, we, we think of Jesus as a prince of peace, or perhaps you do, I do. And it's easy to forget just how jarring this would have been to that audience and to that world. My favorite book that came out this past year is a book called Dominion by Tom Holland. He's a British popular historian. He's like uh, their David McCullough. And uh, it just came out in America under a different title, uh, but still called Dominion. Um, And he writes this about Jesus, uh, because this is about the spread of Christianity. He says, divinity in the ancient world was for the very greatest of the great, because you, could, you couldn't walk through a public square without passing by some enormous godlike statue of Caesar, right? So he said, divinity in the ancient world, man could become divine, but it was only for the very greatest of the great, for victors, for heroes, for kings. Its measure was the power to torture one's enemies, not to suffer torture oneself, Its measure was the the ability to nail one's adversaries to the rocks of a mountain or turn them into spiders. That a man who had himself been crucified might be hailed as a god could not help but be seen by people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous, obscene, grotesque. He goes on. The ultimate offensiveness, though, was to one particular people, Jesus' own, The Jews, unlike their rulers, did not believe that a man might become a god. They believed that there was only the one Almighty, one creator of the heavens and the earth, the Most High, the Lord of hosts. Empires were his to order, mountains to melt like wax, that such a god might suffer the fate of a slave, might have been tortured to death on a cross, were claims as stupefying as they were repellent. No more shocking a reversal of their devoutly held assumptions could possibly have been imagined. 
Not mere blasphemy. It was madness. Now, lest you think that was confined to the Roman Empire or first century Judaism, it's still true today. The, those to whom we ascribe godlike status uh, are still the beautiful, the influential, the innovative, and those who triumph over adversity, not those who succumb to it. And so Christ's coming into the world stage is a major surprise. It's a major surprise ideologically. It's a major surprise religiously and historically. But it's also a surprise personally. Because you might not be a person of violence. You may have never held a weapon in your hand, never even thought about holding a weapon in your hand. You may think of yourself as proudly pacifistic. And yet most of us, when hurt or offended, our first impulse is to strike out and then justify our anger in the name of fairness. When we feel wronged, we want payback. And in fact, indeed, so much of what we call justice today is actually rebranded revenge. The witness of Jesus Christ runs against that grain of human nature that wants payback. That wants, uh, that wants an eye for an eye. Indeed, grace, which is our shorthand for all that Jesus did and is and still is to come, grace seems to go against every instinct of humanity. You and I are naturally drawn to cause and effect, to earning what we receive, and are deeply surprised, but also skeptical and sometimes offended when someone withholds judgment or refuses to exact what we feel are rightful consequences. If you need a case in point, this holiday season, just, just uh, watch or listen to or read uh, Les Miserables again. It's all there, the offense of grace, but also the transforming beauty of it. Now, make no mistake, Jesus Christ upsets the apple cart, our carefully balanced apple cart, and confounds our tit-for-tat way of thinking. He defies our expectations, which unfortunately, or fortunately, is part of, a big part of what gets him killed. This man refused to escalate aggression. He refused to repay sin with more sin, and yet, he's full of surprises. Right until the very end, when after being shut away in that grave, dead, rises again three days later and comes to his disciples, those who betrayed him, those who bailed. And he comes to them instead of with a wagging finger or with an outstretched sword, he comes to them with mercy and embrace. And he comes to them with a mission. Now, my own personal watchword for this uh, has come from the writer and essayist Leslie Jameson, who is a fantastic uh, essayist. And she was talking to the Paris Review a couple of weeks ago, actually a couple months ago. She was talking about grace, because it's sort of her current obsession. And she said this, she said, surprise is an important part of grace. You thought you wanted cookies, but you really needed seltzer. Grace isn't the thing you planned, it's what you get instead. 
It's not a product of moral cause and effect. It catches you off guard, often in the form of a thwarted narrative or a plot line we write for ourselves getting overturned. She goes on, she says, Surprise is sometimes my working definition of God or grace. It brings me back to that recent stand-up routine by the comedian Kyle Kinane, who says that a miracle is just the world letting you know it can still surprise you. Now, this is why nothing makes me sadder than when I hear someone say that they hate surprises. Because, yes, there could be some past trauma involved, but 95% of the time, what someone means when they say, I hate surprises, is I really, really, really like control. I like security. I like to know what's coming. I do not want anything that's not expected. You know, welcome to the human race. I, I like it, too. I hate surprises. I want to know what's on the horizon. I want to know what's coming, but when we cut ourselves off to surprise, we cut ourselves off to so many of the good things in life and so much of what God has in store. Now, if you're at all like me, well, then December means that you're in the season of moving quickly, of going from one thing to the next, of your shoulder to the grindstone, where you're so bogged down in the day-to-day that you don't have time for any surprises. You certainly don't have any time. Your narrative cannot be thwarted. You have got to get to the finish line. Maybe, you're, maybe you, you come to see surprise as a, as a distraction or as something that will, will take you off course, as an inconvenience. Or maybe you've come to believe that there are no surprises left. Those were all in the past. Well, experience tells us, and the Bible uh, confirms That surprise is very often how grace arrives in our lives. From falling in love, to the birth of a child, to the sudden opportunity you never saw coming. When your plot line is overturned, God is usually in the mix. Let me give you a final story, then I'm done. My older brother, who's an Episcopal clergyman up outside of New York... He tells the story of meeting a young couple who had asked him to perform their marriage, and this is something that he's, he, he does a lot. And um, when he first met Seth and Amanda, uh, he noticed that they were very bubbly, and they seemed so compatible that he almost, uh, he was deeply concerned. <laughs> he was worried there wasn't much reality happening, that it was too pie in the sky you know, very idealistic young people who were cruising for a bruising, as they say, when it comes to the trenches of being actually married to another human being. And so he, he, before agreeing, he said, well, why don't you tell me how you met? Tell me how you got together. And Amanda proceeded to say that they met on, they connected on, online, and they went out on a date, and the first date, it went pretty well. Not great but enough to warrant a second date. And so they went on a second date, and that went, that went well too, but again, not lightning striking, but enough to warrant that third date. And on the way to their third date, Seth had a seizure and drove his car into a telephone pole. He was hospitalized, and the doctor said he would be in that hospital bed for six months minimum and was in a coma at the beginning. 
Now Amanda finds herself in a very awkward position. It's like, it's like you know, when you start dating someone right before their birthday, but like times 100. Um, uh, she, what is she going to do? She likes this guy, but it's two dates, six months. Who knows what's going to happen? All of her family naturally is saying, you are under no obligation here. No one will think less of you if you walk away, if you get back on the horse, and you maybe see, check in with him in another eight months. And she thought about it. And yet, when Seth finally opened his eyes a month, late, a month later, much to his surprise, the first face he saw was Amanda's. And in that instant, he knew that this was the woman he wanted to marry. And so he stopped the story at that point and looked at my brother and said, and this is why I can't believe I'm actually saying this to you, but that seizure and that crash was the best thing that ever happened to me. Now that's a surprise. The surprise of Advent is that darkness is not all there is, not for the world and not for you. The narrative of consequences and cause and effect and predictability has been thwarted. And what's more, it will be thwarted again. I promise you. Hallelujah.